Welcome to the 33rd episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is A Die-Hard Merrill Advisor's Journey to Independence, a conversation with Michael Henley, founder and CEO of Brandywine Oak Private Wealth. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. Historically speaking, the leap to independence was one that advisors took later in their careers, typically staying with a big brokerage firm for the better part of their tenure while building their business to critical mass. Or they made their first move to another wirehouse, a transition deal, the perfect opportunity to monetize in the short term. Yet with an industry where change has become a way of life, we're starting to see another shift in movement and mindset. But this particular shift is led by a new generation of younger advisors, the 30 and 40-somethings, and their career path is unlike that of the generation of advisors before them. They're getting educated on their options far sooner. They're eschewing the short-term windfall of a transition deal and taking a longer-term view of building enterprise value over the next 20 to 30 years, rather than the 5 to 10-year time horizon of their predecessors. Essentially, they're betting it all on their own ability to find the way to best serve their clients and grow their businesses. Today's guest is a perfect example. At just 34 years old, Michael Henley was already a top-rated Forbes advisor and the leader of his eight-person team at Merrill Lynch, a team that managed nearly a billion dollars in assets for high-net-worth clients. A self-proclaimed student of the business, Michael spent years researching the independent space, following industry leaders like Michael Kitsis, and even listening to this podcast series to gain a better understanding of the differences in working for a big brokerage versus starting an RIA firm. It's those differences, a nexus of sorts, between what an advisor can do to serve clients and grow his business at one of the big firms versus building a firm that's helping to drive this new trend. But the question still remains, why are younger advisors jumping in so much sooner than those with far more experience? Is it because the landscape is vastly different than it was five or 10 years ago? Or is it a millennial mindset that's fueling their motivation to trust in themselves above others? I've asked Lewis Diamond, Executive Vice President and Senior Consultant at our firm, to join us as well, not only because he worked with Michael through the due diligence process, but to also provide another voice on what matters most to advisors in this generation. There's lots to discuss, so let's jump right in. Michael and Lewis, thank you both so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thanks, Mindy. I'm excited to be here. Likewise. Thank you for having me. You bet. Michael, let's start with you. So tell me a little bit about your business and your background. Absolutely. So I started off my career, um, our entire team did at Merrill Lynch. So really, we were kind of born and raised uh, wirehouse advisors. So eight of us total on the team, five advisors, three administrative partners. And all we really knew was Merrill Lynch. So we kind of started our practice at Merrill Lynch grew to approximately, which is called seven, seven and a half million in revenue at Merrill Lynch. 
and then decided to last summer go ahead and go independent. So we, for, on behalf of our clients, we took all of our clients to independence, you know, to our RIA, established an RIA. And with the help of you and Lewis and Dynasty Financial and Fidelity Partners, we really um, made a pretty significant transition and it's been an unbelievable experience and I have nothing but positive things to say about it. All right, so let's unpack that a bit. You were with Merrill for eight years, and that's an extraordinary business you built in that time. What did you do before that? So prior to being at Merrill, I was actually on the Legacy Bank of America side. So I was in the credit card, kind of high net worth credit card department, and then mortgage underwriting. So I kind of did both sides of the balance sheet, credit and balance sheet management. So using kind of leveraging my experience on the lending side, transitioned over to Merrill Lynch from there, and then um, went through their training program, their three-year training program, the PMD program. And uh, the rest is history. Got it. And tell us about your team and the roles they play. Certainly. So we have, as I mentioned before, five advisors. So essentially we have uh, myself and my kind of co-founder and chief operating officer, Allison. So the two of us, then we have Mark Jackson, another one of our partners, is another relationship manager um, on the team. And we have Stephen Tracy, two of our legacy partners, um, who had essentially been at Merrill Lynch 30 and 37 years, respectively. So in terms of the five advisors, three of us are between 30 and 35 years old. And our two older partners are, let's just say, 55 and 67, respectively. Okay, so we're going to come back to the notion of the motivations or the feelings of the older generation. But one other question, what about your client base? What does that look like? Uh, great question. So our client base is primarily, let's just say, retirees for the most part. Um, typical client, let's say new family we bring on is age 55 to 62, I would say. Um, the vast majority or a large focus for our practice has been um, retirees and active employees of DuPont Corporation because their North American headquarters is in Wilmington, Delaware. Got it. Okay. At Merrill Lynch, you ran the team of Henley, McConey, McGuire, Jackson, and Associates. And I know that one of your partners was less than 10 years from retirement at the time we started talking. Can you talk with us a bit about the things that were most important to him and how they impacted your thinking? Uh, certainly. That was actually one of the biggest drivers is that Steve being, let's just say, less than 10 years from retirement, exactly as you stated, we looked, we evaluated the Merrill Lynch CTP program, and it was essentially a four-year program um, that, that paid him out his ordinary income over a four-year payout based on his trailing 12 production. And the challenge that we had, Steve specifically had with that model, was the fact that he has no desire to exit the business entirely, I would say really at any point in the future. I mean, he likes the idea of staying involved in some capacity like most advisors do. This business is his baby. It's his whole world. So he liked the idea of a longer transition plan. So instead of being four years, perhaps 10 years, and being able to stay on in some capacity where it makes sense. With the CTP program, you know, essentially after the four-year period is over, he loses his production number or his advisor number, and we would have effectively had to hire him under the team as a client associate or as a CA. He would have had to come back on the team almost in a support capacity, which doesn't really bode well for a 40-year, you know, multi-million dollar producer at Merrill, where we were able to structure the kind of his transition plan or his retirement, if you will, in the form of a sale of equity to the business. We can do it over a 10-year you know, installment sale. So it's almost a pension for 10 years versus four. And from a tax treatment standpoint, he's able to claim that income as long-term capital gains rather than ordinary income. So more flexibility, better after-tax consequences. And ultimately, he'll stay on as the chairman regardless of whether his equity is sold back to the firm or not. So 
It's that certainly makes sense from an economic perspective, but how about the emotional perspective of a 30 some odd year veteran leaving Merrill, the notion of going independent, the notion of the hassle factor of making a move? How did all of that land on him? That is a great question. So I would say that I'll never forget, we had an owner's meeting um, at Steve's house, actually, where all five owners got together. And we were, you know, all kind of on board. So Mark, you know, Allison and myself, were all kind of completely on board with this is better for our clients. It's going to be some upfront heavy lifting. We recognize that. But long term, we think the, the, the work is absolutely worth the outcome. And we positioned it as, hey, you know, we think we can go ahead and, and make this transition. It's more flexible for you. Yes, we're going to be walking away from some significant unvested deferred compensation. You know, we kind of talked through that aspect and we'll come back to that. But we think it's, it's the best outcome for our clients. And we actually so I said, Steve, specifically, you have always done a phenomenal job of putting your client's interest first. You've prided yourself on this since I've worked with you for as long as I've known you. If we can give our clients better outcomes, better advice, uh, more comprehensive planning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and basically, you know, it's some work on the front end for us, but we know with certainty we can do better for our clients. How can we at, know that and still continue to stay at Merrill Lynch? We feel it incumbent upon ourselves to make this transition on behalf of our clients, if nothing else. His response was actually, you know what, if you, you know, I agree with that and let's, let's do it. And he actually was incredibly supportive relative to the fact that he's 37 years at Merrill Lynch. Yeah, that's actually awesome. And bravo to Steve, because we work with many multi-generational teams. And while conceptually, the notion of independence or gaining more freedom and control is appealing to everyone, it's often very hard for a lifer advisor at a firm, someone like Steve, 30-something years in the business, whether it be four years or 10 years from retirement, to A, wrap his head around walking away from significant deferred comp, and B, really believing that in fact there could be a better way to serve clients. So I guess my question is, how did you convince him of that? What do you think was the most compelling thing you were able to show him or say to him that proved to him or got him comfortable with the fact that clients could in fact be better served as an independent? I would say that from the from the actual client outcome perspective, the sophisticated planning tools that we now have far surpass the proprietary tools at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. So that aspect, Steve trusts our judgment as it relates to technology capacity and technology tools and resources. As it relates to kind of the, the personal decision, I would say this, the entire team collectively over the past, let's just call it three years, there was a significant deterioration of the culture at Merrill Lynch. Not only in the, in the local office that we were in, but I would be spending hours and hours and hours navigating, you know, Merrill Lynch's latest compensation plan, trying to identify how do we do what's right for our clients, but still, you know, earn the maximum amount of compensation. Um, and just the time that I would spend on this and kind of jumping through hoops, you know, householding clients, you know, de-householding clients, it, 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 kind of the target never stops moving at Merrill Lynch. And while it's a great firm, I just felt that I was spending too much time on the compensation plan and Merrill's kind of growth in you know, a new growth grid program focused on bringing in a large number of families and they would treat a $300,000 new client the same as a $3 million new client. And we just felt that they were going more kind of quantity over quality when in our practice, our philosophy is very simple that we look to add three to five new families per year and we want to make sure they're the right families. You know, we're not going to add 15 to 20 new clients every single year, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar rollovers here and there. That just isn't a business that we have built. So the compensation plan aspect, Steve just said, hey, jumping through hoops is craziness. Merrill's changed so much over the years. The culture is gone. 
On top of that, one last point that I'll make is that when we asked our team collectively, are you all still happy at Merrill Lynch? The answer was not no. I mean, plain and simple, when Steve realized that all seven of the other partners no longer enjoy it the way we used to, it just changed so much over the years with the, a lot of things you've talked about. He said, okay, if no one's happy and clearly, you know, I'm somewhat, you know, not involved in the day-to-day operations, we have to do what's right for our clients and we have to keep our team happy. That's very interesting, Michael. And I think one of the most fascinating things about your journey from starting off, ramping up extremely quickly, being very happy and enthusiastic with Merrill to now where you are today was that just anecdotally, your wedding cake was the Merrill Charging Bull. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, so our, so the groomsman cake specifically was a Merrill Lynch bull. Uh, I met my, my wife at Merrill Lynch, so we have some history there. And I would say that I was the kind of poster child for Merrill Lynch. I was diehard Merrill as long as I can remember, always going to the various top advisor summits, which are now called educational symposiums, you know, still the, whatever they're called. Um, always had a great time, had a great relationship with some of the top advisors at the firm. And I would say the culture, while I did love interacting with some of these top advisors, it became more and more difficult to do business. It just seemed like they were constantly you know, asking more and more from us, sell more Bank of America checking accounts, do more Bank of America mortgages. Um, here's the latest credit card offering. It just constantly was in conflict um, with what we felt was a fiduciary advice model. And what I mean by that is, if a client needs to secure a mortgage for a, for a beach house or a child or something, we should be able to shop the street on behalf of our clients. I don't care if it's Wells Fargo, Quicken Loans, PNC, a local bank, what have you. I just didn't feel it. I was being completely objective, giving conflict-free advice, only being able to leverage one financial institution. So I just, I like to say that, you know, it's our job and responsibility to, get, to give our clients access to the best services and resources in the industry regardless of whether or not those services are at one firm. We're going to use one firm or 10 firms, but I just didn't like the idea of being limited to one firm. Yeah. What you just described is probably the most common refrain we hear. The the ultimate driver, if you will, at the end of the day for those that have broken away from the big firms like you. But let's go back to the subject of you said we were walking away from some significant deferred comp. And I would imagine mostly Steve and some of the longer tenured partners. So how ultimately did you reconcile that? That's a great question. This is a topic. So this topic, as well as essentially what are we going to do for compensation the first three to six months are critical questions. Let's tackle them both. Dynasty Financial Partners offer something called a revenue participation note, an RPN note, which essentially they're able to buy 10% of our top line revenue in exchange for you know cash up front. Um, so they'll give us a significant amount of capital up front. I believe it was a 50% um, amount the day we lifted out, or let's just say within a week or so. And that 50% of the RPN note up front gave us capital to essentially pay the owner's salary. So the five of us, the five owners, what we did was we looked at our final Merrill Lynch compensation that month, if you will, last you know, July of 2018. And we said, okay, let's take like 85% of what we were making at Merrill Lynch. And let's put us on a flat salary for the first, let's just call it six months. The reason that we did that was we wanted to make sure that you know that there was no lifestyle impact for all of the owners. That was one of the important things. And secondly, we ran the numbers enough that we know that we could actually reimburse Stephen Tracy their unvested deferred compensation. The big difference, though, is that at Merrill Lynch, the unvested deferred compensation was taxed as ordinary income. So if Steve's was $2 million, for example, he would net after tax, let's call it a million dollars, you know, give or take. With the taking money out of the business via the RPN node, we're able to structure it as a personal loan from the business. 
So it's essentially a tax-free event, and there's a nominal interest rate that business would pay, but it's a way to get him the same after-tax consequences. And unlike being at Merrill Lynch waiting for an eight-year cliff vest, where essentially any awards you receive in 2018, you won't get for eight years all at once, it was a, we were able to give him liquidity much sooner. So it was able to, we were able to give him much quicker liquidity um, and better tax consequences. When we first started working with you, you made the bold statement to us, um, and actually since then multiple times, that making the break from Merrill to launch your own business was probably the best decision you, you could have made and probably will make in your career. Why do you think that is? I would say that the freedom, flexibility, you run the show. I, I can't even explain in words how, how, how amazing this has been. Um, at Merrill Lynch, and mind you, I absolutely love my tenure there, but you were working under this umbrella and you essentially were kind of managed a, a certain way. Compliance was a certain way. You were limited in terms of what you were able to offer clients. The software was limited. Something about owning your own firm, choosing your own office, designing it from the ground up. So designing every aspect of this office from the ground up, it, it is so incredibly gratifying. And I would say that knowing that you're really here you know, for your clients, you can really shop any firm on Wall Street on their behalf. You can use research from any firm on Wall Street, any insurance company. You have no limitation at all. You just feel because you're calling the shots. I mean, you, so you're doing what you feel is right on behalf of your clients. You're not limited by some householding rule or we, can, we only can charge the client X fee. We can't charge them a flat fee for financial planning. There's just so many aspects of what we do, what we feel is right, that we could not do before. Yeah, I definitely hear you. And while today you're confident in where you are in your decision, I remember that there were multiple other options or channels or possibilities that were uncovered and embedded before you ultimately aligned on working with Dynasty Financial Partners, launching your own independent business, and leveraging Fidelity as your RIA custodian. Can you walk us through what some of the other decision factors were and ultimately what drove you to Dynasty and where you are today? Certainly. Um, so we did explore a couple other options relative to other wirehouses, regional firms, the LPLs of the world, high towers. What we felt strongly about was that we want to do one transition in our career. We have no desire to go from Merrill to Morgan and from Morgan to Independence or from Merrill to LPL and then do our RIA separately. So we wanted to do a one transition in our career and be done with it. We had no desire to, to kind of do this twice, if you will. So it was really important to us that we were able to kind of accomplish all the things that we were used to having at Merrill Lynch. How do we replicate what we have as, as a starting point? Everything we currently offer to clients, we at least want to be able to replicate that without issue. Just by way of example, so we had a, a large amount of clients in a, a Merrill Lynch vehicle called a trusted IRA. And essentially, we were able to move essentially every single client who was in a trusted IRA out of the trusted IRA over to a plain vanilla fidelity IRA and work with the estate attorney where it's appropriate to, to create a conduit trust as a beneficiary. Effectively, you're doing the same exact thing that we were doing before at Merrill Lynch. And essentially, now we're not locking the money up into one trust company. The client's beneficiaries can choose you know, which custodian they want to use. If they don't like Fidelity, they can go to Schwab. If they don't like Schwab, they can go to Vanguard. So you're able to essentially replicate or offer the same exact sorts of solutions, but without being limited to one firm. So, and I know, Michael, that one of the things you just mentioned, the trustee IRA situation. So we recall you worrying about how trustee IRAs would be handled, lending and trust, et cetera. Can you share with us a bit about what you learned just as examples and how that impacted the transition? Certainly. Um, so I would just say that, you know, the, the important thing to us was, you know, everything that we did for clients at Merrill, we wanted to make sure we could at least replicate no issue. 
The trusted IRA is one example, certainly. Um, another example would be a, a mortgage vehicle called Parent Power, where it's essentially 100% financing for a, a child or a, a client's child. That can be replicated at Bank of New York Mellon with Pershing as the custodian. So effectively, everything that we were able to do before, LMA rates, so Merrill Lynch Advisors, you know, no fondly LMA loan management accounts, and the rates that we were told are the kind of the most competitive rates in the industry. No one's going to come close to these rates. We drank the Kool-Aid at Merrill Lynch for years. And sure enough, we go to Fidelity and they were able to lower the rates across the board for every client in the practice. We were able to essentially give our clients better lending rates. And, speci- and we were able to tell our clients at when we work for a big bank, we are paid on lending. We are paid to lever up your balance sheet. It, it, we don't agree with that, but we, you should know the truth. In the RIA world, you are not paid on mortgages or on lending. So it's something that we felt strongly about and being able to kind of tell that story to our clients, we don't feel it's appropriate for us to get paid if you rack up your credit card balance or your LMA balance or your mortgage for that matter. So it's something where we could say, hey, our job now is to shop the street on your behalf, keep interest rates as low as possible on your behalf, but we're not going to be compensated either way. Yeah. And so you talked about some of the other options that you considered along the way. Was the whole team aligned in the desire to go independent? Because one of the things we find is that the more partners there are on the team, the more opinions there are, the harder it is to get everybody aligned heading in the same direction. So can you talk with us a little bit about that? Um, I would say that we were all aligned in the sense that we wanted out of Merrill Lynch, we wanted something else. And we felt like Merrill Lynch was, in our opinion, the best firm on the street. And if you're going to be at a wirehouse, we felt that was the best choice. So to us, going to a Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, or Another, let's just say a regional firm, a, a Raymond James RBC or what have you, they had some attractive aspects to kind of you know, get back to kind of a better culture environment, if you will. But there were still limitations. We still weren't able to shop the street on behalf of our clients. There were still various limitations where you're really not running the show. There's still compliance oversight that may not be necessarily appropriate for our, for our type of practice. So when I say we, we evaluated the other options, the RIA space, in my view, in our view, was, was clearly the only option. Hightower was one of the options we looked at. And just by way of example, our challenge there was it was important to us that we were going to go independent. We wanted to go independent and build our own brand. We didn't want to build the the Henley Group within Hightower or what have you. And then just, just for perspective, the Focus Financial Group, that was a great offering. However, Many of us being very, very young, uh, we didn't want to limit our upside. So it was important to us to, ma- to, you know, to maintain a large equity ownership of the practice. And we just felt that, that wasn't a good fit at this point in time. So do you consider yourself a serial entrepreneur, Michael? And what I mean by that is someone that was born to be a business owner, or did it come to you over time as the independent landscape evolved more and your team became more frustrated with Merrill? That is such a great question. And believe it or not, the answer is no. So I would say I don't consider myself a serial entrepreneur at all. I, I think I would, I'm diehard wealth management business, diehard in this industry. But I would say that when we first went down this journey, we said one of the things we have no desire to do is pay the cleaning service or you know worry about the trash being taken out or, or what have you. Now, what's interesting is going down this road, the pros, if you will, or the positives of going independent so significantly outweigh having to run the business yourself, we said, unquestionably, this is the right decision. We knew it'd be a little bit more of running the business than maybe another wirehouse or being in a regional firm or what have you. But as long as you have the right partners on the team, you have the right support, if you will, Dynasty is a big help with a lot of those moving parts. To us, independence was the only way to go. And I would say that being a, a self-employed business owner from a tax standpoint has a lot of advantages. We felt it was the right decision all the way around. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, just as an aside, 
10 years ago or so when independence became more mainstream, it used to be that it was the advisor that had had a lawn mowing business when he was 11 and then started some business when he was in college or something of the sort. So the serial entrepreneur that went independent. And while there's no question that an advisor needs a certain modicum of entrepreneurial spirit, with the advent of the whole ecosystem that's been born to support the breakaway, the need for somebody to be uber entrepreneurial and who wants to put toner in the copy machine and call the cleaning service and all that other sort of stuff is much less than it once was. And I think that's what you're saying. Exactly. I would say that that is such an important point because I've talked to dozens of Merrill Lynch advisors the past couple of months since I've left. And I would say sometimes they'll ask me, hey, how much time are you spending on, you know, the cleaning service or compliance or all these these kind of misnomers out there? That is genuinely not the case at all, particularly if you hire a service provider like a dynasty where they do a lot of the heavy lifting as it relates to compliance, as it relates to billing, as it relates to a lot of these moving parts where we don't want to be burdened with those items. So we'll, we'll use a service provider to cover a lot of those items. I can tell you that's the number one thing that I get is number one, how am I going to cash flow the first three to six months? How's that going to happen? Number two, deferred comp. Number three, how much time are you spending running the business? And once they realize, so wait a second, so that's not taking up a terrible amount of your time. So you're still able to really help families more than you were before. And you never have to sit through a Bank of America credit card presentation ever again. No more Bank of America, my learning ever again in my career. I'm glad about that. You realize that, wait a second, I can better serve clients. I have better tax treatment. I better, I control every outcome. I choose which clients I bring in and which clients I don't bring in because I'm driving the bus. It's not Merrill Lynch telling me what to do. All the way around, I would say I genuinely believe if we fast forward five years from now, the top most talented planning focused teams at Merrill Lynch will go independent. I can almost say I can't imagine why they wouldn't. The compensation plan is getting worse and worse. Merrill Lynch is still in protocol. So they have a they're able to take some of the client information, which is wonderful. I just think all the way around, I think it's the right thing to do for the clients. I think they'll be much happier when they get to the other side. Michael, can you talk a little bit about your transition? Now we're almost exactly six months out, um, have a bit of hindsight bias. But what was the time period in which it took you to, from making the decision on we're going to go, we're going to use Dynasty, we're going to use Fidelity, to Resignation Day? And then the second part of the question is, at what point during your resignation from Merrill did you feel as if the transition was truly behind us and now we can really focus on business as usual and continue to grow our practice like we did before? Uh, certainly, that's a great question. So I would say that, okay, going backwards, it was probably November of 2017. I'll never forget, I called my partner, Allison, my number two on the team and said, hey, you know, what do you think about sitting down with an advisor who left Merrill? I think you used you all also, Greg Sarian, left Merrill a couple years back just to see what he has to say. I just, you know, I've never really sat down with an advisor who's left Merrill Lynch as the grass greener. What do you think? I mean, she said, hey, let's, let's do it. So we sat down with Greg and this is kind of the fall of 2017. And sure enough, he said, you know, every aspect of the business is better, you know, raved about it. Everything was, you know, everything is better planning, client outcomes, client service, the whole game, it's better. So we said, okay, um, let's go down this road. So we engaged, I want to say you, uh, you know, you and Mindy, and then like this late 2017, did a couple exploratory calls with Dynasty Hightower Focus, et cetera, in early 2018. And then I think we officially signed up with Dynasty, if I'm not mistaken, in February of 2018, sometime around then. And we were pretty aggressive. We were concerned that Merrill Lynch was going to leave protocol. So we went ahead and had a resignation date of July 27th. And effectively, you know, that was our, our resignation day. And on the day itself, it, like, like most stories, it was uh, pretty crazy because, you know, eight of us are resigning from what we thought would be our lifelong employer. 
I regrets about the bull wedding cake. I'm just kidding. So it was a uh, certainly a you know kind of a crazy day. It was like three o'clock. We all went and resigned. No one at our office was you know was there to take our resignation. They were all at the Billy Joel concert. Kind of a funny story. But basically, bottom line, we went ahead and resigned. The office was completely blown away. No one saw this coming, and I think that is such a critical aspect of it because we were so diehard Merrill. I mean, no one in a million years thought we would ever have resigned. That afternoon, we started calling clients that evening, which was a Friday. So we started calling clients that night and just said, hey, here's what we did. Here's why. An email gets blasted out to all of your clients on all of our clients on a Friday, you know, let's just say at five, six o'clock. And effectively, you know, we start the, the paperwork process and start moving clients, you know, one after another. I said, let's just call it, you know, five to seven client meetings a day, Saturday and Sunday. Just trying to get to your, your top clients right away, get paperwork done before they get bombarded by Merrill Lynch in terms of phone calls and solicitations. So it was uh, no, an exciting journey. First month or two is, is pretty chaotic. So it's, uh, it's the thing I can compare it to the most is the excitement that you that I got starting off in this business. So when I was in PMD originally at Merrill, you know, once you get over your kind of get your first client under your belt, you realize, wait, I can do this. I actually can do this. This is crazy. That gratification you get, that unbelievable euphoria. I would say you get that all over again, but this time, but this go around, this time around though, you're the expert. Everything you wish you knew back when you started in the business, you now know with 100% confidence. So, you know, we went over scripts with all of our partners, kind of what to say, what not to say. It's an exciting time. Think it back, I get excited. Got it. And how has the transition gone in terms of portability of the assets? What percentage of the clients have moved? How has your compensation changed as a result of the transition as well? So I would say that uh, let's just call it 85%, maybe even closer to 90% of our clients have moved. I like to say that 100% of the clients that we invited have come. <laughs> so essentially, there's some there's some one-offs where baseless at the estate settlement was going through. So that, uh, we have assets still moving over this month. Um, it's still going to be a transition for certain clients that may be going through a life event. But let's just call it 80 to 5 to 90% of clients have moved. In terms of advisory assets, we've moved closer to 90% of the assets that actually paid us, the assets that matter, if you will. And all else being equal, I think it's important to recognize the fact that at Merrill Lynch, let's just say we did $7 million in revenue, but we only received a 40% payout on that $7 million. So I think it's worth mentioning that you know while our owner's compensation was $2.8 million at Merrill, let's just call it approximately $5 million here in the independent world. It's probably closer to five and a half, let's just say $5 million. Our net owner's compensation is higher than it was before. So you can say with confidence, our compensation now is the same or better than it was before. And we haven't even hit our six-month anniversary yet. And we'll hit our six-month anniversary later this month on January 28th. So I would say all else being equal, compensation is the same or better. So ultimately... You know, the first three months is, of course, chaotic. It can be stressful. It can be overwhelming. There's a lot of moving parts. But I would say unquestionably, you have to keep in mind, after three to six months, it really calms down. And I would really encourage, and I'll, I'll happily volunteer myself, any Merrill Lynch advisors or teams considering independence, talk to another Merrill Lynch team who has done this. There is no better advocate for doing this transition than the Merrill Lynch team. And I can tell you, if I didn't speak to Greg Sarian, I don't know where we'd be. It was, it was great to talk to another Merrill Lynch advisor, Greg Sarian and Jason Cord. I'll give him a, a shout out also uh, from Quadrant Private Wealth in terms of, hey, this is doable. You can do this. A couple of years from now, you're going to say it's the best thing you ever did. No one ever goes back to Merrill Lynch. They all go forward. So talking to other Merrill Lynch teams, I think, is the absolute best course of action. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And on resignation day and in the days and weeks post resignation, how did your clients and especially your top clients or your most discerning clients react to the news that you left Merrill? Were they surprised? Were they scared? Were they anxious? What was their overall reaction? 
I would say that they were surprised in that they thought I'd be at Merrill Lynch forever because um, I've been kind of the poster child of Merrill Lynch. Um, so they were surprised in that this must have been a big decision. Why did you do this? And once I explain, it, it's better for you. Every aspect of what we do for you and your family is improved or enhanced now that we're independent. We're still going to leverage Merrill Lynch research for portfolio management, asset allocation decisions. Once they realize, okay, Merrill Lynch is still going to be kind of a involved on the research side, but we're still going to be your primary point of contact. Nothing about our relationship with your family will change. Fundamentally, all that's really changing is the custodian changes from Merrill Lynch to Fidelity. Everything else stays the exact same. I think clients, they don't like the idea of a major, you know, huge decision they have to make. So if you keep it simple and we're changing custodians, but we're upgrading everything we do for your family, it's a very simple conversation. I would encourage advisors not to overthink it. What was the biggest objection that you received And was there a common theme or thread amongst the dissenters? I would say the biggest of the client we signed moved over yesterday. She had first, um, let's use an example, her as an example, clients who were incredibly intertwined in Merrill Lynch. Let's just say they had their checking account at Merrill Lynch, their credit card, the Merrill Plus card, they had their mortgage, they have all this stuff, kids accounts, HSA is the whole gamut. Sometimes that can be a little bit intimidating for a client to go through this, this transition. And sometimes I'll say, well, it's easier to stay where I am. And I would say that, you know, there are certain clients that maybe are that intertwined. I would say most advisors in Merrill probably don't have every client that intertwined. But those clients ultimately will come over. It's just a matter of they have to recognize that, okay, they want to sit down with the Merrill Lynch advisor, recognize they're not competing anywhere near the level that we are. And once they recognize that, they're willing to go through the process of moving the checking over, moving the credit card over, if it makes sense. So those are probably the biggest objections, how intertwined the client was. Beyond that, everyone recognizes Fidelity because they're three times the size of Merrill in terms of assets. So Fidelity Investments was a great story. It's kind of the strength and stability of a firm that made it through 2008, 2009 without a flinch, if you will. That was a compelling story to tell because our clients lived through 0809 and saw Merrill Lynch almost go bankrupt and get acquired by Bank of America. So being able to say, look, this, this is a custodian that is, that is rock solid, biggest 401k provider in the industry, that went a long way to reassure them we weren't going to some hole-in-the-wall custodian they'd never heard of, et cetera. And being able to explain to them that we're separating our RIA, our new business, from where your money is safely held. It's very important that that, that was kind of clearly communicated to all of our clients we're not commingling your family's assets with our new firm. They are held completely separately. Once they realize, hey, if our new firm, you know, God forbid something happened, your money is safe at Fidelity, they realize, okay, this is it's a third-party custodian. It makes so much sense. We explain to clients we are not compensated by Fidelity whatsoever. Our job is to keep Fidelity's fees as low as possible. It's an embedded, you know, we're on the same side of the table now where we were not before. So it's just, you know, those kind of conversations actually went extremely well. So if I can for a second, I want to pivot to you. Michael, having had the pleasure and privilege of counseling you and your team through this due diligence process, I can say with certainty that you are a star, but a young star with a long runway until retirement. So one of the things I want to talk about a little is we've begun to see a trend of younger advisors making the move to independence. And in a world where the average age of an advisor is creeping close to 60, there's no doubt that your story rocked the industry in ways well beyond the fact that yet another almost billion dollar team left Merrill to go independent. So would love to ask you, why did you feel you were ready for independence now? What gave you the confidence to do it instead of waiting another decade or so? That is a a great question. I kept asking myself one question. Number one, what am I waiting for? So that was probably the most important question. If not now, then when? 
there's always going to be a reason to defer. Well, what if we have kids? I just got married. You know, what if one of our partners has a child? There's so many aspects that you can kind of come up. I don't want to say excuses, but you can come up with a million reasons why. It's easy to come up with reasons why not to move. And I would say the question you have to ask yourself effectively is, 10 years from now, will I regret not making this move or will I regret not even, you know, essentially staying at Merrill Lynch? When I look forward 10 years, I would say if I'm still at Merrill Lynch in 10 years and I'm more and more limited by this comp plan, by the infrastructure, by the situation, I would have a lot of regrets. I would have regrets to not even consider exploring the opportunities. So as a bare minimum, my advice to, to Merrill Lynch advisors or any wirehouse advisor would be at least have the conversation with colleagues of yours who have done this. And at least ask them, why have they done it? What is better? What is worse? What, what, what are the pros and cons? And engage. I would say that one of the best things I ever did was listen to your podcast. So your podcast, I mean, I was obsessed with it, listened to it a thousand times. And I would say, I'll never forget reaching out to you. And, and that was so helpful just to have someone who could objectively say, okay, there's pros and cons, leading pros and cons to staying. Here's the, here's the different avenues you can take. Because I can tell you, I felt that I was a pretty astute advisor in the business as it relates to understanding broker-dealers versus RIAs, et cetera. But it is a, a world that is overwhelming. So whether it's LPL, you know, all the different aspects, RIA versus BD, broker-dealer versus independent broker-dealer versus another wirehouse, regional firm, there's so many aspects to, to kind of to explore. You have to engage a professional. The same reason why clients engage us to kind of objectively make decisions on their behalf. I think it's, it's critical to engage a, a recruiter. As, I, I would highly endorse you all in terms of just, just going down that road. Even if the choice is to stay at Merrill Lynch, at least, you know, kind of check the box. I did my due diligence. I chose not to do this or to do this. And here's why. I just don't think you can just kind of you're driving blind until you actually engage a professional. Thank you for those kind words. I'm grateful for them for sure. I want to turn to Lewis a second. So, Lewis, you work with a lot of younger advisors around Michael's age and Michael's demographics. So what typically are their short and long-term thoughts about being at a brokerage firm versus going independent? Do they mimic what Michael just shared? Certainly. And I would say Michael is definitely a bit of an outlier in that he was the team lead and was so successful in such a short period of time. But I think across the board, if you look at advisors we're talking with and representing today, it definitely seems to be firmly in the category of a movement rather than a trend toward independence. And most of these teams have at least one younger member that is very interested in, in independence, even if the older partner is still calling the shots and controls most of the assets. And what we're seeing is that these teams are now more than ever at a real inflection point in their business where an older partner is months or weeks or years away from signing on to CTP or Alpha or FFAP. And the younger advisors are very uncomfortable tying their fates to their current firm for a minimum of five years. It's pretty easy to make a decision based on the status quo. If you knew with certainty that nothing's going to change, that everything we know today will be consistent, but not knowing what five years holds and seeing the rapid pace of changes within the firm, whether it's the compensation plans or technology changes or compliance or even just the fear, and I would say it's probably a little bit unfounded, of salary bonus. Younger advisors especially are saying, this is our time to really take control over our careers. And I think just in general, the millennial mindset or younger advisors, they value everything that independence is. This generation, it's the generation of entrepreneurship and startups and creativity. 
And if you look at the unicorns right now, they're all led by young visionaries who are trying to make a big difference in the world. And I think that is a perfect analogy to what we're seeing in wealth management, where younger advisors and teams, they want to have creativity with social media and marketing and lead generation. They want cutting edge technology. They want to do much more for their clients above and beyond just investment management. And they're seeing that having flexibility to charge planning retainers or charge for family office services or offer lifestyle services is much more congruent with their vision of ideal. And it's not necessarily an avenue they can explore at their current firm. What used to be was that a younger advisor in his 30s or 40s, let's say, would say, if I'm going to move, I'm going to move to another traditional firm as an employee. And I'm young enough that I've got another 10 years or so to, I'll go independent then, once that forgivable loan is paid off. And so, Lewis, in your opinion, what's wrong with that way of thinking and why has it changed? Yeah, so I don't think it's necessarily wrong. There are still a lot of advantages to a younger advisor at staying with a big firm. Having the big name behind them, the resources, the support, the encouragement um, oftentimes lends credibility and keeps an advisor focused. So I think a lot of advisors do value that. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong to look at another wirehouse or an employee model firm and value taking some chips off the table if they know that this firm is going to be different enough from where I am today to justify the hassle of a move, to justify the risk of making a move. I think, though, what we're seeing, and it's not just with younger advisors, but across the industry, is a de-emphasis on transition money, seeing that it, it locks you up, and instead valuing things like culture and control, long-term economics, enterprise value. So the buzzwords or the drivers or motivators of the advisor population as a whole, and especially those in mine and Michael's generation, definitely seems to have shifted along with the rest of the industry. Yeah. So, Michael, let's shift to you a second. Thank you, Lewis. You had shared offline when we were preparing for this several pieces of wisdom that you wanted to share with your ex-Wirehouse colleagues relative to going independent. And if I recall, there were four. Can you share them with us? I sure can. So I would say the first thing is absolutely pull the trigger and don't overthink it. So I would say it's very easy to get overwhelmed as you start to go down this road. And I would say if your loyalty is to your clients, or I think everyone in this industry, wirehouse or not, their loyalty is to their clients, not to the brand they work for. So I think as your loyalty is to your clients, pull the trigger and don't overthink it. And that could be pulling the trigger, just sitting down with a recruiter, sitting down with just exploring the options, but pull the trigger, don't overthink it. Number one. Number two, it is very doable. I can say it is an overwhelming even our last like week or two at Merrill, you know, you ready for this? It's going to be crazy. It's kind of just prepping yourself mentally, but it is absolutely doable. And I can say with 100% certainty, being less than six months in, you know, we can if we can do it, legacy Merrill vets, I can say with certainty, there's if anyone can do it. Number three, there is a learning curve, so it's going. There's going to be a lot that you kind of have to unlearn, if you will, from Merrill Lynch in terms of how annuities are held or whatever the case may be. But it's worth going through the process of understanding it. And I would say that after you learn all of this, the outcome is absolutely worth it and you'll feel much better about it. You'll have a better understanding of this business in general. The fourth thing that I would say is don't overcomplicate conversation with clients. 
So if there's one thing I would say I would probably do a little bit differently now if I was giving a mayoral advisor advice is don't give a long, drawn-out story. They don't need a 15-minute explanation as to why you did what you did. Explain why it's in their best interest. Keep it really simple. The most important, the most valuable aspect of our relationship, John and Susie, is our advice. And the one aspect of our relationship that is not changing in this transition is the advice we give to you and your family. I think keeping it really simple, because sometimes the word independence can scare people. I think keeping it as we're changing custodians. I think that when you call and say, I just want independent, people, Meryl jumps all over that and says, oh, independence equals unstable. When in reality, it's, it's, you know, it's just more objectivity. It just has to be positioned a little bit differently. And don't overcomplicate it. If clients think they have to make some big decision, you know, 15 minutes, a story about why you did this, it kind of makes them nervous, if that makes sense. Great advice. And thank you. So the truth of the matter is there are probably a million other questions that I could ask you and a million things other people will be wondering. I think that your very generous offer to serve as an advocate or ambassador for independence, if a Merrill advisor wanted to have you be their Greg Sarian, the guy that sort of gave you the courage and the insights to what it looks like on the other side, I think that that's a wonderful offer. So I thank you for being my guest today, Lewis. I thank you for joining me. It's been a really wonderful, educational, productive period of time. Thank you. Happy to do it. Thanks, Mindy. So here we have a true diehard Merrill advisor. For six and a half years, he was all in. That was until things began to change at his firm. Michael realized that he could no longer provide the objective, conflict-free, and best-in-class solutions to his clients. And as a fiduciary, he had the responsibility to identify a better path. With only six months in as a business owner now, Michael is already a fierce advocate for the independent space. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with attorney David Genn a partner and the head of litigation at New York City law firm Elinoff, Grossman, and Scholl. For the past 25 years, David has represented many advisors in transition, broker-dealers, and RIAs, so he is perfectly positioned to share his experience and expertise on non-protocol moves, critical issues to consider when making a move, and much more. It's an important episode, and I hope you don't miss it. Until then... I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. I thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. <music>